eventually when I was about 20, when I was you know, 26 years old, I came to the conclusion that I was a trans woman and uh, decided to transition. Long story short, about perhaps five to six years later, I realized that that had been frankly a catastrophic mistake uh, and, and one that I deeply, a decision that I deeply regret. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, my guest is Oliver Davies. He goes by Ollie, so I'll call him that. He's a 34-year-old detransitioned man and software developer living in Melbourne, Australia. Today, Ollie has been so generous as to share his story with us. So um, I'm excited to welcome you and your detransition story. Thanks for joining us, Ollie. Thank you so much for having me on, Stephanie. It's a pleasure. All right. So you said that you wanted to share the story of how someone like you would think he was trans and what the ramifications of that were. Tell us about who is someone like you and how did you come to believe that you were trans? Mm, yeah, so I was born in uh, in Wangaratta in northeast, northeast Victoria, uh, the state I live in. I, from the outside, had a pretty ordinary childhood, sort of, you know, middle-class family. Did most of my schooling years living in Sydney. Spent most of my time there as, um, spent most of my time as a young adult there. And around the age, I, I didn't have gender dysphoria growing up. I didn't have thoughts of ever wanting to be a woman or anything like that. Uh, I was bisexual. I didn't realize that until my early 20s, I suppose. And I eventually, when I was about 20, or when I was you know, 26 years old, I came to the conclusion that I was a trans woman and uh, decided to transition. Long story short, about perhaps five to six years later, I realized that that had been, frankly, a catastrophic mistake, a decision that I deeply regret. Yes, that's, that's my story in, in a nutshell. So no history of childhood gender dysphoria. How, at 26, did you decide that you were trans? Mm. Well, <clears throat> I had a lot of issues and I knew it but I had never been able to get to the bottom of it. And I don't even feel like I had the language to talk to them about them to people in my family or friends of mine. But ever since around age 12 or 13, I had been deeply troubled um, in a lot of complex ways. And my parents were aware and various ways we sought support, but never really went anywhere. And by the time I was 26, I was, 
I had been serially attracted to a bunch of people that I had intimate relationships with, partners of mine that were simply not good for me and were not a match and that I was drawn to for the wrong reasons. And I had also been in a relationship with someone who midway through the relationship I learned was a, a trans woman, a sort of post-op stealth trans woman who had some regret. You didn't regret. know? No, I didn't. It was a non-sexual relationship. She, well, she wouldn't say this outright, but I knew she had a lot of trauma and I assumed that that partly as a result of that she couldn't feel comfortable having sex. I don't know whether that was why or whether it was to do with her SRS. So I had had that relationship in about 2011. After that, between then and 2016 when I came out, that was when there was this really big, there was this cultural moment around, I can't remember the acronym people were using, they spoke a lot about how all men are bad and this was the start of the backlash that I think then led to Me Too. And I was surrounded in my little alternative milieu in Sydney of people who, you know, we all dressed funny and we all partied a lot and a lot of people like to do a lot of drugs and we were all sort of felt like we were on the edges of society, living in ready share houses, working dodgy jobs. We were all dropouts. And in that milieu, uh, all those ideas started to become very, very popular. It wasn't like woke, but it was, it, was, it was getting there. And I had a partner who started just saying to me again and again that maybe I'm not a man. And it got to the point that occasionally when we would argue or fight, as all, really, as all couples do, when you, know, when you throw a comment at someone just to, just to attack them and shoot, throw at me, you know, I'd say, oh, I can't, I can't believe you're, you're, not, you're saying I'm not doing this. She's like, well, you're the one who's not addressing your gender stuff and you need to do that because until you do that, you know, we're not going to be able to work through this stuff. And, and that, I, even then I didn't believe it, but that was what was being said to me. Was that the same trans woman? No, no. This was a cis woman, bisexual cis woman, but extremely woke. She was a slam poet. She introduced me to uh, a book by Paul O'Friere called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And from that, I started le- reading a lot of the literature that seems, you know, a lot of the literature from the 1980s and 90s that seems to have been foundational in, in some of the ideas that are prominent now. Sorry. So you were no, in this good. relationship uh, with yep. this bisexual woman who was very woke, and during yep. arguments, she would. Mm. Say that you have gender issues mm, and mm, that you're not yeah. really a man. Yeah, yeah. That sounds abusive. Uh, I would say so. Yeah. I mean, I'm typically not fond of people throwing around mental health terms because I'm not a mental health professional and I think it's inappropriate. But it's hard for me not to think in retrospect that this person was a, a narcissist, at least behaving in the way that narcissists often do. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of other things I could go into that <laughs> seem to validate that. But well, yeah. You know, that's that's in my past. But toward the end of that relationship, I was in real crisis, sort of deep down, uh, sort of existential crisis. I was seeking meaning. I had had a period later earlier in my life where I'd experimented a lot with psychedelic substances, and that had really helped me work through a lot of things. I had a lot of preconceived ideas from the way I was raised that were really ruling me until I was in my 22 or 23 and did that and they really got me past that but 
I also was looking for meaning in life and I'd failed to find it there. So I thought I would, but I didn't. And so I was reading and reading and I had gotten recruited into a far left sort of sectarian organization, a revolutionary Trotskyist organization, which uh, was a, you know, the people in it were adults, mostly pretty reasonable. I mean, their politics were extremely to the left, but it was a serious organization full of people who'd been doing, you know, far left politics for decades. I got deeply invested in those politics as well. And through that, uh, through my readings in Marxism, I did come across, I managed to find thinkers who wrote about, you know, the Mark, what they considered the Marxist perspective on transgenderism and how the gender binary is, is an oppressive social construct, which is part of sustaining and, you know, the capitalist order, that, that's the argument. And therefore they argued that transgenderism is a radical challenge to, this, to the order and that trans people are structurally oppressed by that order. I sort of shared that around with some of my so-called comrades in the group at the time and they, th- they thought, yeah, that seems like a reasonable analysis. So it all worked with that. I was in deep crisis my, this relationship was on the rocks. We weren't, we, we weren't sleeping together. I went to a conference, a professional conference in New Zealand where I, yeah, where I was around a table having drinks after the conference one day with all of the other, not all of the other, but many of the other queer attendants. We often all grouped together, all the gays and bisexuals and trans people and so on. Uh, just having drinks, sitting around with one of my closest friends, a gay man who is now happily married. And it was then with someone who was a trans woman, a lovely person, who I think had perhaps only recently came out and was explaining her history and situation. And everyone was being very lovely and affirming it. And it was all very new to a lot of people there. And then uh, another trans person who was there, who I had never met before, uh, who was from the States, turned to me and sort of took me by the, the shoulders and looked me in the eye and said, you're trans, aren't you? And I, I had this moment where it was almost like time stopped and I didn't know what to do and like flipping a coin and I said yes. And everyone else at the table heard, overheard, and they were all like, oh, my God, really? And everyone was like, whoa, that's, a, that's great. Tell me more. What do you mean? Like, when did you realize, like, oh, and what a crazy coincidence that you're saying this the same night that she is. And it became this, you know, beautiful emotional moment where I felt so connected to everyone else there. And, you know, we were at the bar, so I got a bit drunk, not too drunk. Uh, I went back to my hotel room where I was staying by myself. I just, I sort of decided what my name was going to be or what name, my name is. This is the way I, uh, I was thinking about it and sort of who I am. I wrote it down on a postcard that I'd bought while in New Zealand as a note to myself to remember what I have discovered, to always remember what I have discovered about who I really am. It felt like the most profound moment in my life at the time. And I flew back to Sydney a couple of days later, sort of came out. Can I? Yeah, sorry. Can I pause you there? This is such an interesting moment, and I love that you really slowed down as you described it. So 
and I want to invite you, if possible, to go any further into that, like the mm. the feelings, the thoughts that you were having, yeah. the narrative that you were creating about yourself in that mm. moment. Yeah. I mean, I had always felt alone, always disconnected from everything. From a very young age, I could connect with books. I was always a really advanced reader in high in, in school. I was always years ahead of everyone else, and that was sort of my passion. The only other time I ever really felt connected was when when I did psychedelics. I felt connected to the universe. I felt like there was some meaning. I felt like I I was part of something. But other than that, I mean, I had a lot of friends. I had a lot of hobbies. It's not like I was miserable all the time, but I thought that that was just what life was like. Or I thought that most other people were a bit dumb because they didn't weren't as cynical and 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 jaded and distant from the world as me. And also, I thought that everything that was bad was because of capitalism and the ruling class and the oppressive system we live in. I thought I'd finally found something that explained why I felt that way and that if I had, and, and everything I had read about it and everyone that I'd ever spoken to about it had talked about it from that perspective and had explicitly characterised their experience in those terms, more or less. So I grabbed onto it. I, I have subsequently figured out why I really felt that way but there was nothing in my life and no one in my life that was either willing or equipped or even knowledgeable enough to, to highlight that for me or point me in that direction. It sounds like an epiphany. Would you mm. say that what you felt in that moment is what they call gender euphoria? <clears throat> yes. Absolutely. Oh, I wouldn't say it was gender euphoria. It was almost more like identity euphoria. It was a, and it was really, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't, don't know how sort of accurate the way I would put this is, but it, I feel like it was all about my ego. And I already had a gigantic ego. I was almost all ego. And this was like, Hell yeah, I've found something that is like dynamite. Like I've, I, and not in a way like this gives me power over people or this gets me clout. It was just like, for me, this is like, you know, because I had, I had no self-esteem whatsoever. But if you're, if you've realized that you're actually part of an oppressed minority and that that explains your life, that is actually cause for some sort of twisted self-esteem, like that's something you've got now, and that was alluring as well, I think. So it was a real peak experience for the time. It, it was. felt profound. It was. It, it felt was. like I'm also getting like a sense of relief from this burden that you'd been carrying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it, it certainly that seems aligned with the experience many of the experiences that I've read and heard from trans people uh, and, and detransitioners obviously many people have different stories but at the time uh, I felt like yeah that 
that's what trans people go through. Makes perfect sense. When that trans person asked, you're trans, aren't you? I mean, you slowed down. You described like looking you in the eyes. I mean, you're, you're put on the spot mm. and you make it make sense. So what's going through your mind in that moment? Why the hell not, basically? I s- like I, a lot of things have been I leading didn't... up to that with what you'd been reading. and Yeah, and I wasn't terribly taking my life very seriously. I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't being careful in who I chose to associate with or setting boundaries in my life that I was enforcing or, yeah, I was. So you had a kind of a self-destructive streak. Mm Mm-hmm. I was treated badly by a lot of people. I treated a lot of people badly. I was never, I don't think I was ever, you know, abusive toward anyone, but but I I was pretty naughty. (laughs) Yeah, there's, you know, there's some people with some legitimate, you know, grudges against some things I did in that period. I'm talking myself down here. The point is I was not not well. And, okay, yeah. so please go ahead and continue with your story. You said that you, you were back in your hotel room and then you yeah. went back to Australia and your life started, you started making this new narrative that made sense of your life as yeah. trans. Yeah, I told my then partner, who was the one who'd been putting those ideas in, all my head, and she said, that's great. And then a couple of weeks later, met. we lived together, but she asked me to meet her for coffee somewhere. And she said, I uh, don't have it in me to support you through this, so I want to end the relationship. And she broke up with me. Yeah, I wasn't devastated by it at the time. I'd known that it was time for the relationship to end as well and it's certainly been moving away from her and she knew it. So I'm not trying to say, you know, she she, she dumped me because she didn't want the effort of being trans, but, but that was just how it went. And I, yeah, I came out to everyone in my life, including my parents. They were hesitant. My mum questioned it a bit, but they also didn't really understand it. And they were going through a separation and my relationship with both of them separately was very, very troubled. In fact, I was barely even talking to either of them or returning or acknowledging their phone calls and messages. But I did talk to them about this and tell them I was doing it and they accepted it. I went online to Google what trans-friendly psychiatrists were because, as I understand it, in New South, the state of New South Wales at the time, the requirement for accessing hormone replacement therapy was that a psychiatrist make an assessment where he is he is reasonably confident that you believe that you have gender dysphoria and that you are in sound mind to make that judgment. So I had I believe I had to see him three times. I did that. He asked some very basic questions about my life history, managed to f- sort of dig around and find a few examples of things in my life that, you know, indicated that I might have always thought I was a girl, like sort of the fact that I asked Santa, uh, as a dare from a friend, by the way, I asked Santa for a Barbie doll house when I was seven. Parents got it for me, which I think is pretty cool and pretty progressive of them, actually. And that was that's, that's mentioned in the letter that I have from the psychiatrist saying that he believes I have uh, gender dysphoria. And and can I ask at this time, how much did you feel, how much did you believe yourself? Did you feel Mm. like you were making a sincere effort or was it like 
that you read online that you were supposed to tell them this stuff? And I'm also curious to know about your history. I know you said you didn't have dysphoria, but I wonder when you say that people were reading you as trans, was that their agenda or were like, did you dress in a feminine way? Like how, how was your gender presentation? So it's quite curious. I assume that I was doing something gender non-conforming and, and that seems to have been the case my whole life. I had an extremely late puberty to the point that my mother actually took me to a paediatrician at age 14 or so because she was worried that I might have some sort of issue that meant that I might not go be able to go through puberty. I'm, I don't know. But he said, no, nah, you're all good in that regard. It's just late puberty. But also based on seemingly nothing, just said, you might be autistic, by the way. Well, I think he said you might have Asperger's, which I don't. But obviously he was picking up on something from my behavior because I was not well at the time. Well, just curious about like how, how your gender presentation was. It sounds uh, yeah, like you have yeah, some sorry. insights. There was something yes. coming across yeah, yeah. about so, you to others. So I, yeah, I had a late puberty. I've always looked, so for my whole teenage years, I looked extremely boyish. Not effeminate, but boyish and, and awkward and shaggy. By the time I was a young adult, shaped up, I reckon I was a pretty attractive young man. I always wore, my main outfit was jeans and a tight black t-shirt with a haircut a little bit like this, but more messy. I don't know what it is about me, but that whole time that I was with that partner of mine that told me I was a trans woman, we'd go around the world, go to shops or restaurants or venues or anything, and people would be like, hey, ladies, and I don't know why. And it just got planted in my head. I, you know, I think that was just an- another one of the things that just confirmed the narrative. And so, and, and I was bisexual. I had slept with many men, although I am far more attracted to women than men overall. And so by that point, I really 100% believed what I was saying. And therefore, I am very confident that I didn't sort of selectively answer the psychiatrist's questions. I have vivid memories of him sort of asking me questions that seemed relevant to what he was, you know, to trans stuff and me giving an answer that went nowhere. And so he would just move on to asking about something else. Even though I was deep into the ideology at the time, my mother had emphasised to me, I believe, how important it was to go, like, take seriously that process with the psychiatrist. And so I was taking it seriously. And he was a man who reminded me a bit of my dad, actually, in a room with, like, mahogany bookshelves, you know, filled with books, this beautiful office, beautiful desk. You know, it was like a psychiatrist from The the Sopranos or something, you know. It was very expensive. I saw him three times. And, and yeah, he made the judgment and I, yeah, even though I was deep in the ideology, there was a part of me that knew that that was important to have that confirmation because I knew this was serious stuff and I got it from him. How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health, equally important to nutrition and exercise yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, 
and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients, but I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now, I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8Sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Okay. All right. So you see the psychiatrist three times. Mm -hmm. You do the assessment. He gives you the go-ahead. Looking back, what do you think about how that process went? I think it was completely negligent. I think that that professional completely failed to exercise his duty of care. I think that he showed no compassion or empathy. I think that he was not interested in doing his job properly. When I asked him to explain gender dysphoria in detail to me a bit, and I asked him whether psychiatrists or psychiatry understands anything about where it comes from or what causes it, he just handed me a stapled printout of the OSPATH guide, standards of care, or guide, I'm not sure what the exact word for it is, but it's the, it's the Australian standards of care for trans people that were in place at that time. Handed me a stapled printout of that, He said, read through that, and if you've got any questions in the next session, you can ask me about it. And, of course, that document doesn't go into that stuff at all. It just says this is what you should do when presented with a trans patient, essentially. So you, even as as much as you were embedded in the ideology at that point, I mean, you you were involved in this Marxist queer culture that, promoted, you know, that really valued having a trans identity and you had spent the last few, I don't know what days, weeks or months, like re reestablishing your whole sense of yourself and your life. I mean, you were invested, but you still, you left a little opening there, right? You said, Hey, you have some professional expertise that I don't have. Is there something you know that I don't about this gender dysphoria that I believe I have? And there's a a missed opportunity there. That's right. Yeah. And I I can't prove that this professional was aware that there was such a thing as a detransitioner. 
but it's hard for me to believe that any trained mental health professional would not suspect that there must be at least something in my history, even if I legitimately had gender dysphoria, how could it be that someone could get to my age and live the lifestyle I was living? Like he knew I partied, he knew I was a dropout, he knew that I had ADHD-like symptoms. I, I think I have ADHD, I've been diagnosed with it, and just didn't go deep on anything just to even, you know, double check that that's not a factor. It's hard for me to understand, regardless of the affirmative care model, regardless of any of that, how that wouldn't be part of the process. Even, even for someone, even, even if I was someone that transition would have been right for, even if that was a process that would have left me the happiest I could possibly be, it seems that even then I would be entitled to that because otherwise I'm left with, yep, here's your problem, you're trans, and off you go. And, and what happens then when you get to the end of that process and you've still got these issues? What do you see? So yeah, I think there's a real, I don't, don't understand how people can practice like that and operate like that. Yeah. It's just three sessions to decide on something irrevocable. Exactly. It doesn't make sense, especially with your story yeah. being so complicated. Yeah. It's, it just seems like there's, there's a plan already in place that there are certain professionals who, if you go to them with the intention of discussing something gender-related, everybody knows what's going to happen next. Yes. Well, when, when I confronted him about it recently, he said to me, one of the things he said to me was, you were very convincing, Ollie. Got to understand, you were very convincing. I saw you seemed like, you know, you're a pretty stable young man, you're very intelligent, and you convinced me completely. And he showed no remorse uh, or empathy. Wow. So this makes your story even that much more interesting because out of all the people who detransition, few of them go back and confront their mm. providers. Um, mm. Should we skip to that part of the story or should we come back around to it in a more linear fashion? Um, let's get to it. Yeah, why not? Okay. All right. So you recently confronted him. That's right. That's right. Tell us uh, about that. Well, a few months ago, my partner was going through some of my documents looking for something, and she found the letter that my psychiatrist had sent and read it and thought, this is a complete joke. <laughs> she, My partner knows me better than anyone in the world. And she thought, how could anyone have ever had this take on, on him? And so she was apoplectic and, you know, brought it up with me. And I was like, God, oh, you're right. And we've just been, you know, fuming about it. Yeah, very recently I'd had a really tough week. We had a health scare in the family. Uh, we had thought that a friend was missing. Uh, I'd had a breakthrough with my mum, positive one, but it had been a long slog. And I was trying to let off some steam. So I decided, you know what, I'd be, I've had people reminding me I need to do this. I'm going to get on the phone to the offices of my psychiatrist. And I three times called and asked him to urgently contact me. And eventually he did uh, to inform me that my records have recently been shredded 
and my notes uh, and his notes and that, and I said, are you aware of any other patients of yours that have detransitioned? Uh, that was the first question I asked. And he said, yeah, a few. And I said, really? And he said, oh, may- maybe one, maybe. I think, yeah, maybe one that I'm aware of, but I'm not sure that maybe there's some complications in, in the reason she did it. And so then I asked him, I essentially conf- asked him about what had happened to me and confronted him. And I've already explained what he said. And I asked, look, I have to ask you, is there anything you're willing to do to work with me to be accountable for this? I've explained to you the impact that this has had. I've explained to you what was really going on for me at the time and how those should have been obvious red flags for you as a professional. I came to you seeking your help. I paid you a lot of money. You are the gate, you were the gatekeeper and that you were put there for a reason. And I went into that process expecting that to be the process and you didn't perform your function. And he just said, look, I followed the guidelines. And eventually I started getting a little, uh, little emotional. And he said, look, you're being a little uh, aggressive here, which I wasn't. I said, I'm just feeling emotional and upset. And he said, well, why are you so upset at me? And I said, well, you were complicit in a self-destructive process that I was going through and did nothing to stop it. And he said, well, so are you. He sounds like an asshole. Mm. Oh, that, actually, that, that very last comment, I can't remember for sure. It, that that might have been his receptionist. It was either him or his receptionist that made that last very last comment. The rest of it was him. Okay. Just for the record. Still so inappropriate. I mean, what's the point of him being a professional then? If he's, you know, if... I mean, I just feel like if... I could have gone to my friends if I wanted someone to tell me I'd convince them, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're supposed to have this thing called clinical judgment. You know, we're supposed to be very discerning Mm. and aware of the complexities of the human psyche and motivations and behaviors and... Um, you know, if, if he was fooled by you being so convincing, that doesn't put the blame back on you. Mm. That shows a lapse in his judgment and Mm. his responsibility to hold boundaries. Mm. Yes. I mean, it's. And the fact that he, at at no point did he apologize. Or express even remorse or. Even if you look at it from the lens of him trying to avoid saying anything that could, um, you know. Um, Be incriminating. Yeah. Even then, you would have the ability to express empathy or regret in a way that wouldn't open you up to it. You could say, look, I'm really sorry that you're feeling this way, even. Didn't even get that. Have you considered pressing charges or filing a malpractice I haven't complaint? yet decided what to do, but I'm... Yeah, I'm going to do something. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Wow, and he that's knows that. Really and he powerful. Knows, he, he's, he knows that. And I, 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 that was part of the conversation. I was like, look, I'm, the reason I'm asking you whether you're willing to do anything at all is because if not, I will be going further. And that was his response. So we'll see. Wow. 
Okay. And uh, I have right, uh, so. the ability to pursue it and the resources. Wow. All right, well, let's pick back up at that point in your story. So you go see the psychiatrist. After three sessions, you get what you think you want mm-hmm. at the time. Yep, I get what the What happens tick. next? I was referred to an endocrinologist called Dr. Jonathan Hayes, who was practicing out of his offices in St. Leonard's in Sydney, and occasionally in Monavale in the north of Sydney. Very affluent areas, very uh, conservative, traditionally conservative, blue ribbon area, lots of beautiful houses, lots of eucalyptus trees, lots of elite private schools. It's where the Prime Minister lives. I saw him and he immediately prescribed, well, I was referred to him by a trans-friendly GP in Newtown, and he immediately prescribed testosterone blockers and uh, oral estrogen. I came out in the workplace, sort of told my, my boss what I was doing. They were all supportive. They brought in a consultant from the gender center to explain in a way that I found actually quite humiliating to the whole office without me in the room. This was their plan. They suggested that I had, was a trans woman and here's what that means. And the whole company came out and I'm sitting at my desk and they're all trying to pretend everything's normal. Anyway, but everyone was lovely and fine. And yeah, I just uh, then began the, the classic process of uh, you know, social and physical transition, I suppose, and never experienced any transphobia. I have in my past experienced, I suppose, what you would call homophobic street harassment m- multiple times uh, in affluent areas of Australia. And yet as a trans person in, in five or six years, I never experienced any sort of transphobic harassment or hate or discrimination or anything else that would be worth mentioning there. So I went through that process, you know, started and then got into a series of disastrous relationships and friendships and, and, and got into a relationship with a person who unfortunately had bipolar, which became very controlling uh, and ended up taking over my life for about two years. While I was going through this, uh, I was essentially full-time damage control for what she was going through and for what she was projecting onto me. Ended up having to run away from that in a situation where the police were called and moved to Melbourne. I was living in Hobart at the time. And then I got into this milieu of people who I'd known for a very, very long time and got super tight-knit with them who actually years earlier had cancelled me over something superfluous that wasn't even true. And even if it had been true, it was not a very serious accusation. But they accepted me back in now because I was trans, but without any accountability or acknowledgement of anything that had happened in the past. And they were like, you know, almost all alcoholics, almost all deeply traumatised. Many of them were sexual violence survivors. And they became my whole life on top of my, you know, my job for several years. Ended up in a situation where I had multiple partners Everyone in my life around me was really not on my side. Like, I'm, I, I'm a good person. I stand by people in my life. I support people. I support people financially. I do things for people. I don't talk about, don't, don't talk shit about people behind their back. But the narrative that they had about me was some bizarre thing. They were telling each other that I was secretly self-harming myself, burning myself. I've never self-harmed. 
like they were saying I serially use people, which I don't think any of my exes would say, regardless of what critiques they might have of me. (laughs) Uh, All sorts of stuff. It was a bizarre, just toxic, toxic environment. But I thought we were the most radical, enlightened people on earth because we saw how sick society was and we were the only people who could see it and how oppressive everything was. And that just started tearing my life apart and my self-esteem just got lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. I was in a workplace. All of this while you were living as a trans woman. While I was living as a trans woman. I was working for a startup in the renewable energy sector that was going through a lot of trouble. It was a very poorly managed business, uh, but I really loved the job. So I was working incredibly hard. I took on a level of responsibility equivalent to how do I put this? I was just sort of on my normal software developer salary, which is, you know, I get paid okay, but I took on a level of responsibility that if I went and got a job like that on the market now, I could earn 200000 a year Australian. So a lot of money. Like, so it was a, I was in a serious, serious role, and that was consuming my life as well, and the pandemic was going on. Uh, at, well, that started in, during this. Oh, this is pretty recent actually, now. Actually, no, sorry, that's wrong. The pan- that was, pandemic comes a bit later. I was w- with all these people and eventually something gave. I was at the house of someone who I then considered, you know, one of my closest friends in the world, enjoying a, enjoying a smoke and a, and a beer outside at about 1am out in the, back, in the backyard. And a couple of people arrived who thought they were crashing a party, a couple of young women, and it turned out it wasn't a party. There'd been a party there earlier. But it was just uh, some other people that I probably earlier, but it was just me and like seven of my closest friends. And uh, one of them just left. Uh, the other one stayed. She was like, oh, do you guys mind if I just stay and chill while I have an Uber? And I said, yeah, of course you can stay and offered uh, her a drink. And we met. And that is the person who became, who is the, uh, my partner, who is now the love of my life. And... As it happens, this party that she had crashed, that her friend had just dragged her to in an Uber to say, it's going to be great. As it happened, the house they turned up at, they walked through down the side of the house to get to the backyard where the party was. When we were chatting, we'd been sitting there for about five minutes. My partner, Jen, Genevieve, goes, oh, my God, this is the house where Xanthi died. And I said, what? Who's Xanthi? And she says, Xanthi, my best friend. She shows me her knuckle tats. It's got Xanthi written on it. And her best friend, Xanthi, had died of an overdose there just about a year or so beforehand through sheer coincidence. And the person who had found her was there at the party and they met. And so... That's just one part of what was going on that night. I was in a relationship with two people at the time. And she asked me, are you Polly? And I said, no, (laughs) because I had just ended up in this situation through circumstance, not really planning it. And she was like, (laughs) because as soon as she saw me, she wanted me. But nonetheless, we spent all night just talking to one another and fell in love. And... It blew up my life. Those other relationships ended quite spectacularly. I gradually realized that 
the one of the one of my closest friends in the world was actually a serial sexual assault perpetrator and a number of other people in this group had been as well and that almost everyone in that sort of group of friends and in the wider community around them were willing to allow them to use queer or non-binary or transgender identity as a smokescreen for it. So one person whose serial history of serial perpetration was revealed, you know, people weren't very happy with him and he later came out as non-binary and all of a sudden he was rehabil- his reputation was rehabilitated in that group. And he would speak often about how he'd gone through an accountability process and he was still with the person that he is, is still with the person that he assault, assaulted twice. But of course, you know, he's spoken a lot about that accountability process, but has not gone back and talked to any of the people that he's assaulted. But this was considered okay in a group of people who are continuously engaging in online call outs and cancellations of people and celebrities for sexual assault and violence and so on. And so that, that, it was all happening at the same time. And my partner, Genevieve, the, she had to work so hard to see that I was being gaslit by all these people because I introduced them as my best friends in the world. I was like, you can trust these people. And in the very first time they were ever alone with her, they said, we need to tell you something. Ollie's not okay. He's got serious issues. He's unstable. He burns himself. He? Oh, sorry. They would they would have been saying she at the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. Um, she my immediately name was, felt my name a spark was Kara with you at the time. But yeah, mm-hmm. it was. And she knew you were a trans woman. It was, she didn't know what I was until we had first had sex. She didn't know whether I had a penis. But it was. She says she would have been okay with it if I didn't. I was desperately hoping that I did. <laughs> that was her position. Yeah, she didn't okay. care. So she didn't just care. This instant spark between she just loved you me straight Jen. away. Yeah, and she, mm-hmm. I said I'm a trans woman, and she was like, "Oh, okay." But very soon in our relationship, she saw what was wrong in my social group, and partly. Mm-hmm as a result of the fact that they kept pulling her aside to quietly, individuals kept kept pulling her aside to quietly tell her off for the way in which she would talk about her own experience as a woman or for even just asking basic questions like, she was confused because she knew about non-binary people, but then in my group all these non-binary people who were not on hormones were calling themselves trans. And she was like, wait, wait, is non-binary trans? I didn't realize, like, she just didn't, she just thought they were different things or related, but different. She was like, I, like, is non-binary trans or not? And she just took a side and it was like, look, what we all believe is that blah, 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 blah. And this is why you can't ask questions like that. And this sort of thing happened repeatedly. So she saw all these red flags and she was like, nah. And, and so she started to question all these ideas that she had just accepted because she'd been in this queer community as well. She'd never been far left like me. She's never been very political and she's very spiritual and very enlightened, but nonetheless had believed all these ideas, partly because of her training. Um, and 
Yeah. So, so, but she, she started to question it and, and didn't, didn't push me you on it. You mentioned her training. You mentioned her training. I don't think our audience knows yet that she's a psychologist. Oh, yes. yes. Well, she, she, where she, was she in her career at that time? Uh, so she's not a, she's not a practicing psychologist, I should say, but she has a, oh, she okay, has, sorry. she's got a bachelor's and honors and is planning to go do a master's in the, well, as soon as we can make it work in our, in our, our bit crazy lives, but it's, um, it's definitely her, her plan and, and her, her calling in some sense. Yeah. And, and most mm-hmm. people who meet her, uh, affirm that straight away yeah she's very psychologically astute absolutely she she's essentially a free therapist for most of the people in her life yeah so this was the beginning of things transforming for you i'm i'm excited to hear more about how your relationship with jen unfolded but first Mm. if we can go back a little ways Mm. i mean you lived for about five years as a trans woman. Mm. And uh, you described a lot about your social relationships at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, could you also tell us a little bit about what what was that like for you physically and emotionally? Mm. Mm. Well, when I first managed to get my hormone prescription for the testosterone blockers and the estrogen, the day after... I, I got them. I remember getting up early to go to work and standing at the train station in the cold, waiting for the train to the city and having this, I was, I was looking at the beautiful sunny morning and I had this moment where I, I, I felt finally I can see joy in the world and finally the sun is coming up and I was genuinely convinced that this was because I'd finally gotten gotten the hormones so there was yeah there was this 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 feeling of you know like when you get out of a much needed shower it was like that but I would get it It would that moment that feeling would come to me several times a day for a few weeks after I first started going on hormones then it tailed off but I physically physically the, the the transformation was always very gradual for me and not particularly challenging, I would say. The, 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 the testosterone blockers had the unfortunate effect of making me very incontinent, which remains to this day. Um, well, not I wouldn't say very incontinent, but I have remarkably poor bladder control to the point that it's like embarrassing at work. I was reasonably happy with the way my body was transforming at the time. I had never liked my body when I looked in the mirror. I had never liked my face when I looked in the mirror. I had never thought, that's me. And I was convinced that this would get me there. And so I didn't necessarily, I didn't actually think if I'd been honest with myself and looked in the mirror, I was still, I would still feel the same things. I'd still think that's not you. You don't look good. You're ugly. People think you're a weirdo. People think you're a freak. People know you're at, at a glance that there's something wrong with you. I still would have thought that even once I was on trans, sorry, once I was on hormones, but I was telling myself that I know that, that was no longer the case. Sorry. I mean, there are real physical changes, but there's also kind of that placebo effect. Yeah. Because what you describe is very similar to how people, you know, like if someone struggled with chronic depression and hopelessness, sometimes they start taking a medication and just the act of taking a medication before it's even taking effect mm-hmm. has this feeling of like, I'm finally going to be free of this burden that I'm carrying for so long. Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, I'm very skinny as well. So the effects that HRT had on me 
even though I eventually was on an, an extremely high dose, were reasonably subtle, I suppose. Like I never developed large breasts, did have some weight gain in the standard areas, but my the way people have read me has always been about how I'm presenting myself, whether I before or during or after I thought I was trans, I think, yeah. So it was so, pretty mild, but, but, but felt you did significant. get incontinence. Yeah. There was also a requirement, a legal requirement at the time that I sperm donation for IVF in case I ever want to have children. I thought at the time that I never would. I was convinced that I never would, in fact, because life is hell and suffering was what I thought. How, how could I possibly want a child or couldn't even imagine wanting to do that? So, but I did it anyway. I did the, uh, the sperm donation. And then several years later, when I was in that uh, disastrous relationship living in Hobart, my life had been such chaos and I'd lived in so, so many different houses in the past, you know, I lived in more than one house a year for many, many years just because of that's what it's like when you're a renter in Sydney a lot of the time. And so I hadn't updated my address with the IVF clinic. I'd changed banks. I'd, uh, my phone had been destroyed at some point when I was on holiday and I didn't have ID for my old name that that phone number was in. So I'd had to get a new phone number. And so the IVF clinic had no way to contact me and they destroyed the sample. And then I met Jen and realized that I want kids with her. And she's wanted kids her has whole your life. Fertility, has it's your gone. fertility been permanently destroyed? Well, I don't know, but doctors have given me advice that it likely is. And my partner and I have lots of unprotected sex and she's never gotten pregnant. And I would be surprised if she was not fertile. She's a healthy, young, buxom woman <laughs> and with no history of infertility problems you know, on either side of her family. I'm so sorry. That's tragic and heartbreaking. It's been very challenging for us to come to terms with it, but something that helps is the fact that some of our closest family members are Jen's sister and her wife, a lesbian couple, wonderful lesbian couple in their late 30s with two children. They've obviously had to do IVF. They have no other choice. Such is life. But it is, that's how, <laughs> that's how I rationalize it to myself. It's hard. My mother took 10 years to conceive me. They did IVF for, they were living in Kenya, trying to conceive, struggled, moved back to Australia so that they could get you know, IVF, obviously it wasn't available in Kenya in the 80s. My mum got an, an experimental IVF program and tried it for many years. She had a miscarriage at one point. They more or less gave up. And then when she was, I think, 38, she, yeah, my mum did, uh, they tried IVF for a number of years. They more or less gave up. And then when my mother was, can't be sure about the ages, but I think it's roughly my mother was 37-ish and 38. My dad was 41, 42, something like that. I think I was just conceived by a miracle. I don't know whether it was they were still trying or whether it was an accident, but it happened. I just, I want to just pause and acknowledge the significance of this. Yes, technically, they required you to donate sperm. There are places that don't, but... And it was very expensive you know, I, as well. I have. It was. I had to pay quarterly quite a lot of money for 
to keep them, you know, storing it indefinitely. Oh, yeah. I see. So it a lot wasn't of like an upfront payment. Up yeah. 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 It's um, it's something that I feel deep, deep regret about, and deep anger about that no one in my whole life thought to convey the gravity of that decision to me. I suspect that my mother wanted to, but I had assured her that I had the sperm donated and I wasn't really able to let her in at the time due to how well our bond had been lost. And so I think she just had to accept that, well, you know, Ollie's done the sperm bank thing, so I'm sure at least worst comes to worst, he's got that and yeah. I feel you, Ollie. Um, that is really heartbreaking. And it's it's an expression of your pain and trauma. It's an expression of what you really needed psychological help with at the time that you didn't want to have children, right? Because now you're at a place in your life where your heart has healed and you've matured and you've finally gotten into a healthy relationship, which has there's made all I the want... difference for you. No, there's nothing I want more. And I have an incredible family, extended family, a network of friends that could, can support us if we can manage to do that. We can have give them the best possible life that we can. And I feel you. like I've finally done the work of breaking a very, very long cycle of intergenerational trauma that I have discovered in my family. And yeah. There is absolutely no way I'm not going to pass that on. As in, absolutely no way I'm going to waste the opportunity to, yeah, bring someone to the world with that, without that. And with the knowledge of how, I mean, you can't protect your children, but I can at least do something to prepare them for what life is like that would have helped me. You spent so much of your life feeling so deeply nihilistic. That's right. And projecting your pain and your ancestral trauma onto the world through ideology. Yep. And the the people around you reflected that. They reflected that ideology, well, but they also to those reflected. People. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, you were playing something out for a while there. Mm. And that that nihilistic worldview says, of course, why would I bring children into the world? The world is a place of pain and suffering. Mm. But but now you know that, that that wasn't some absolute truth that you discovered because you were so smart and because you read the right literature and hung out with yeah. the right people. Yeah. It, was, it was a worldview that might have been very intellectually complex, but that was still looking through a very dark pair of glasses and interpreting yeah. things in a certain way. And yeah. that really... It wasn't about the world. It was about your own heart. And really, it yeah. just sounds like, I mean, it just sounds like you just needed love, yeah. which is yeah. what we all need. And that without that, you behaved the way a person behaves when they're without love. And your mm. mind came up with all kinds of ways to compensate. But then you met mm -hmm. Jen and she cracked your heart open. And now that, now that you've 
had this healing process through that love that you were needing the whole time, your whole worldview has changed. You don't feel nihilistic anymore. You feel oh, like life is beautiful and you want to be able yeah, to share like life that. Life is a gift. Yeah. And I see other people around me playing that out. And I, I, I don't know. I have it, you know so hard to reach out to them and I see people that I love and respect announcing that they're non-binary and I know why they're doing it. I know that they're not doing it for cynical or malicious reasons. I know they're not being fake. I know they're not just attention seeking. But I feel like I know what's going on there. I really do. And, and I, I don't know. I don't want to say I understand other people's experiences and I don't want to say that no one's identity, anyone else's identity is invalid. But when I see people that I feel like I understand playing this stuff out, it it's it's very hard for me because it makes me again feel alone, but in a different way to how I felt alone in the past. You know, and alone in the past, in the past when I felt alone, I'd feel angry and bitter, and then develop a set of ideas. Now I just feel sad and bewildered and wonder what I can do about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate so much that you're, you know, one thing you're doing about this right now is just being so brave and honest and vulnerable and mm. allowing other people to hear your story. And it, mm. it really resonates for me, you know, because I, I have also felt nihilistic and cynical at times because of my intergenerational trauma, right? And, right, and right. Um, you know, I'm somebody who, I'm a few years older than you, right? I'm 37. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. for me, having my own children is not the right choice. And I've always felt that way. But, it, but now I am in a place where, you know, like you, I just needed that right person to <clears throat> heal my heart. Like I just needed love. And I have that now. I have a really delightful person who would do anything to make me laugh. Oh, and, I'm so glad and for you. And he has two wonderful children. Thank you. But now I, I'm having that experience as a step parent where I think, you know, with my own heart healing through, well, through doing healing work for others and through having a relationship that's stable and loving and having family in the form of having my stepkids, you know, like, now I understand what it's like to actually feel like you have the love and support to have children. And like you live in a world where you see that life is beautiful and you want to share that. And I think that I certainly don't think that having children is the right choice for everyone. And mm. I don't think there's anything of wrong course. with not Absolutely. wanting to have children. Yeah, but I do think choice. that if someone doesn't want to have children – from a psychological perspective, you know, if you're especially in a gatekeeping position or if you're a therapist, if you're a psychiatrist or a doctor, if someone says they don't want to have children, it's not that we should enforce an idea of what they should want onto them. But I think that's really important information to explore. What are the reasons for that? Is it because you live in a world where you see the world as being full of pain and suffering or because you've never had the stability and the security in your life to feel like you could provide a secure environment for someone else because the world has always been dangerous for you. Is it because you don't feel love in your life? You know, Because those are all indicators 
of where you need healing, of where maybe there is something in this world that's available to you that you haven't found yet. Mm, and mm. it's just it's just so heartbreaking that so many kids who know themselves even less than you did when you were 26 and made that decision, you know, kids who are half that age. And I was highly educated. Think they educated. know that they don't want children. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have a degree, but I had read I've read more deeply than most, you know, the vast majority of people just in terms of breadth, you know, and yet it captured me, you know, r- relatively easily. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, to kind of bring it back to where we started, that's what you said that you wanted to explore today is how mm. someone like you could end up believing you were trans. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop, where you will find goods and services I've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. So... I'm curious at this point with kind of where to, where we go, how much more like linear story is there that you might want to tell or how much do we just kind of take a step back and reflect on? I think, I think my, my story is mostly told. One thing I'd like to mention is that the endocrinologist that I saw throughout my tenure as a trans woman for most of it, once I'd stabilized on the initial standard treatment, which is the you know, the oral estrogen and testosterone blockers and some oral progesterone as well. He switched me on to, I believe it was an estrogen implant. So it was a crystallized estrogen implant, the size of a grain of rice they were put in my buttocks. Uh, just make a little incision and put it in uh, with an local anesthetic. So he put me on a remarkably high dose I, I I could even grab it in a moment to check what it was. But what I, I later went to a clinic called Equinox in Melbourne, which specializes in uh, gender affirmative care, amongst other things. But the doctor there, uh, he, he was actually pretty frank with me. And he said, look, that doctor has a bit of reputation. And I and most other people who do this are not comfortable with putting trans women on those levels. He said that I was on... I had estrogen levels that were substantially above the peak level that biological women or natal women are at in their menstrual cycle. So as far as anyone else that I've spoken to is concerned, that was experimental. And I have read about, well, I'm aware of someone in Australia that Currently, it is impossible for me to figure out a way to get in contact with them who came through the community health sector as someone who has gender dysphoria and used to identify as a trans woman, but was put on such a, a similarly experimentally high dose and now has such severe, I believe, osteoporosis or something to do with bone pain that she or he, I'm not sure, is now confined to bed at all times and is no longer on hormones. So I'm not sure whether they're still trans-identified, but I suppose in some sense they're a detransitioner. And essentially an anonymous contact of mine in the community health sector said, look, I, I, I processed a form for this person 
and 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 realize their situation. But there's nothing. I had. I'm not allowed to contact them. I've just referred them on through the appropriate thing. And yeah, so that could have been me. That's so horrifying. Um, I talked to another male. Sorry. I talked to um, Brian, a male detransitioner we interviewed Mm. this week. I'm not sure when these episodes will be released. It'll probably be months from the date of recording. But Mm. um, Mm. he also had those implants. And part of what's making his detransition so complicated is is that they're still slowly past, like, yeah. It, so, do you know if the estrogen has passed through your system, or it has? Because the last one was quite some time ago. I don't know exactly how long, but at least three years ago. Okay. But I did then. I did go through um, last year, twenty twenty one. I went through a very, very, very deep depression. Now, part of that was due to uh, the pandemic. I had been. I was confined in my home, working from home for about two years. So that was a factor. But I was completely neglectful of my health, although, I mean, it was legally very difficult to even see a doctor a lot of the time. I suspect I also had a period where that part, a factor in that was complete lack of it, you know, either sort of sexed hormone to put, I mean, you know, I'm a layperson, so I might be butchering how I talk about it. But there must have been a time where that implant wore off before my estrogen went up back up i've only just like i've only my life it's taken so long to get my life back together that i've only just earlier this week finally gotten and gone the gone done the blood test to get the results next week on like my hormone levels because when i have gone gotten blood tests done and they've been like oh yeah your b12's deficient but they don't they don't think to check when you go in unless you say it like your hormones when you do a standard blood test so even as a detransitioner yeah who's been medically experimented on and who has some unknown quantity mm-hmm, of mm-hmm, estrogen tapering mm-hmm. out of your system at whatever rate you've mm-hmm. been on this testosterone suppressant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So actually I realized we didn't completely, I mean, you met Jen and she saw what was happening in your friend group. I don't actually think we got to the part though, mm. where you decided yeah. to so, detransition. Once I kind of, cut all the people out of my life that weren't good for me. I saw it was interesting. I, I cut my hair short, like got a, you know, cool, like really short haircut with an undercut. Started just wearing a T-shirt and jeans around or a sports top and jeans around and just just being, I was just a lot more confident. Um, I wasn't thinking of myself as I'm going to be less of a woman or anything like that. I was just more confident. And then after a couple of months of that, I realised I'm not really being a woman, am I? And I I think it partly became, it was partly because of the incongruence at work where I was being included in these sort of women's spaces in the workplace, uh, as in just, you know, invited to the women's lunch and, you know, things like that. People were trying to be nice. And and, and I started to feel an incongruence because I'm sitting there, like short hair, like sports top. I was cycling to work, so I was really fit and pretty muscly at the time, even though I had small breasts. I was like, weird. And so, and I didn't, even just like using the bathroom at work, I started to feel like, ugh. So I started using the um, accessible bathroom. And just because I was like, I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. And and I was using the the change rooms 
in the bicycle room downstairs, I'd always change in the locker. Like I would shower and then ch- like bring my clothes in there and change and then like race through. But even then I was like, I've started, like I got a couple of looks in there, not hostile looks, but people were like, I think they were surprised to see me in there. And I was like, that's not really what I want to be doing for anyone. You know, like my view at the time was like, okay, if someone clocks me as trans and is uncomfortable, that's their problem. But if like, but I'm putting in effort to, you know, come across as a woman. But if I'm just like, (laughs) really just look like a man with small breasts and I'm in there all confident and sweaty right off my bike, I started to feel like it would be pretty fair for people to feel maybe slightly uncomfortable. And so I stopped doing that and and then just sort of that, you know, I was talking to Jenna about it a lot and and, and she was, she, she finally read J.K. Rowling's statement because we all thought we all thought J.K. Rowling was evil, and <laughs> then was like, "Wait, well, you need to read this." And I read it, and I was like, "Wait, there's not a single thing in that that's unreasonable." This was the statement she wrote in res- the, the original statement she wrote in response to the backlash she got, and uh, you know, not, nothing transphobic in there, as far as I could tell. Nothing even saying people shouldn't transition. It was just really basic stuff, and so that's when it all. And again, like lots of work from my partner helping me work through it. And yeah, a few months after that, it just all fell apart. And I was, and it was then when we, and one night we were crying again about the fact that we wouldn't be able to have kids or naturally conceive kids naturally, um, that it just snapped for me. And I, I broke down and realized it had all been a huge mistake and that I'd been deluding myself the whole time. And I, yeah, went from there. I uh, lost a lot of friends because they couldn't accept it. Detransitioned in the workplace in a way that seemed like a bit of a relief to everyone. Like, I don't, they had to have a problem with me being trans. I think they could just tell that I was more confident and comfortable, you know? Like, they'd always really liked me and respected me at my work. But as soon as I was like, I'm Ollie and here I am, it was kind of like, I don't know, perhaps that was just me, my confidence. Maybe people weren't treating me any differently. I don't know. But it felt, it just felt like everything. In the way that I'd expected when I transitioned, I actually genuinely started to feel connected to who I am, but in a real sense. Like I felt like I could live out my values. I felt like I could tell people that's not okay. I felt like if someone crossed a line with me, I could communicate with that with them and then move on from that. And, and and now I have friendships with people who, you know, have betrayed me or let me down, but who've been account because I've been able to say, no, that's not okay. They've been accountable and now are stronger and we've moved on. Never had that with anyone in my life before. And that all started after I ID transitioned. So uh, my interview with Michelle Aleva, uh, I called it mm. The Long Way Home, a D-Trans journey. And I called it that way because it's like, she went a very circuitous route to coming home to herself, right? And got hurt along the way and made some big mistakes. And But ultimately, it was about coming home to self-acceptance and self-understanding. And I'm kind of seeing that story arc here, too, that you had a longing in you for some kind of wholeness and authenticity 
security, belonging, these these things that we want as human beings. And you were coming from a place of feeling pretty broken and pretty down on yourself in the world when it first appealed to you that identifying as trans and pursuing that path could relieve you of the burden you've been carrying your whole life. But it ended up being like going down a maze that led to a dead end. And that's right. When you when you gave that up, that's when your real life began. That's when you actually found what it was you'd been looking for that whole time. Hmm. Which was self-respect and self-esteem, really. And I've realized, well, I have a tentative theory. I'll need to work through it more in therapy over a very long time. But I my I think that the reason I was so troubled is so my mother at age one was taken by her parents who were reasonably affluent English migrant, post-war migrants to Australia in Melbourne. They were running a business at the time together and they decided it was a bit much to deal with having a one-year-old. So they, I don't really want to tell my mother's story, that's for her to tell, but they took her to a very bad place where she was left for, uh, I think, 18 months to two years with many other babies uh, and they were not given really any care. It's really extreme. Uh, I, I equate it almost to like the famous, like, you know, Romanian orphanages thing. I mean, her experience is not like theirs, but it left a deep scar. And what I suspect happened is that my mother, who desperately wanted children, when she finally had me, she did everything she could, but because she had been so severely abused and deprived by her parents and the state and the church, there's a photograph of the then Prime Minister of Australia holding her on a visit to this institution, by the way. Uh, or looking at nurses holding her, uh, Australia's most second most famous prime minister. I think when she had me, she was not able to. I've read a little bit about like developmental psychology and the maternal bond, and I think that she wasn't able to model emotional regulation for me, and also wasn't able to fully show affection in the physical way, the subtle physical ways that parents do. And my father, my father was, for the most part, quite a good father, but was not, he is quite a, I would say he's he's a very rational person and he's a loving person, but he doesn't show it very explicitly. So he wasn't really able to, or he didn't really do anything to make up for it. And she was a stay-at-home mum. He was working damn hard. And so regardless of anyone's best intentions, I think I ended up being quite deprived. And we I had no siblings. I'm an only child. We had no one in the family that was really close. My mother's side of the family, uh, A, there's not many of them. B, one of them is my abusive grandmother. My father's side of the family, big Big family, but the relationship was always a little strained and we lived in a different state anyway. So 
I just had no one to model anything for me. And and that's what it, I think it all comes down to for me. And I think it's also I, I'm naturally very sensitive. I don't know I don't know anything about nature versus nurture or what, but it's I'm clearly a very sensitive person. I think a lot of I suspect some other people could probably go through what I go through and turn out you know normal. <laughs> but for me, it had an impact that was was deep and impossible for me to understand because I didn't know this. And my mum until. About a week ago when I drew the story out of her bit by bit, didn't even see herself as a victim of child abuse. And this institution, despite there having been a royal commission into institutional child abuse in Australia, there doesn't seem to have been any acknowledgement of, of this place and the, the, the Department of Health and Human Services still lists it on their website as a you know historical place of charity. So there's that where rows and rows of infants were kept in metal cots. Yeah, so there's that deep intergenerational, intergenerational thing. I'm sure there's a story as to why my grandmother did that, um, although I'm very firm that that doesn't and could never justify uh, and depriving an infant or abandoning them. It crosses a line, you know. My mum did nothing wrong despite her trauma, so, mm. yeah. There's that deep, deep attachment wound and that, that pre-verbal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. painful loneliness yep. and it makes sense that you would inherit the imprint of that and that mm-hmm. your mother despite her best intentions would you know essentially have an attachment disorder and have a difficult time attaching to you yeah. as a baby and that you would feel that yeah and and there's been a lot of subtle symptoms of that throughout my life i i started having nightmares and being very afraid of the dark around age 6 after reading like one children's book with a dream catcher in it so from age six until about two years ago, I couldn't fall asleep without the cover pulled up to at least over here and to cover my ears. And my ears had to be covered and sometimes also my eyes. I was terrified of going to bed from age five or six. I had quite an oral fixation, always like cutting my nails, but then also like this is quite a disgusting habit. I like literally like keep nails in my mouth and fiddle around with them in my teeth and I've screwed up my gums a bit as a result. I've never, I had stuff that I just like never told anyone any of this or thought to. Always been fidgety, like I have ADHD symptoms. I suspect that's a result of this. I don't think I was born with ADHD. I don't know, but there, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that I think points to that maternal bond problem. So coming back to your story, you, you relaxed, you just kind of dropped trying to pretend you were anything other than what you were. You stopped taking the medications. And at first it was just kind of this like, oh, well, I'm not trying that hard to look like a woman. So maybe I should, you know, use the men's room. At first it was things like that. But now you you have an online presence where you're clearly critical of how we think about and address gender as a whole. So what was the process like for you of detransitioning, not just practically speaking, but mentally and seeing these issues as differently as you do now? Mm. Mm. Well, yeah. So, so I flirted briefly with being non-binary as my way out and then realized I'm a man. Um, and I kind of just moved on for a while. I had a lot of other stuff going on. I had to find a new job. Got a great job now that's much more manageable and had had 
Jen and I had some roadblocks to get over in our relationship, partly as a result of the fact that she'd spent, you know, two years having to put all the work into like while being lied to and gaslit by people in my life to get me to see what was going on while feeling completely alone because everyone else in our entire milieu is complete, has been committed to these ideas. That's no longer the case. So she, that, you know, she, I think she had a little bit of resentment about that, that she had to manage, and, but that was creating some distance in our relationship, a lot of stuff that we were dealing with. But eventually we, we both started to feel like strong and empowered and, and, and you know, we got our own place. And I started to, and I was just living my life and I started to notice, I'm on social media a lot on Instagram and Twitter and people that, you know, I interact with, whether it's on Instagram, it's like friends of mine, like actual friends or on Twitter, it's like people that I interact with a decent amount. So I'd consider them a mutual, just sort of retweeting or sharing these things that really aggressively pushing lines such as like, you know, like the position of a lot of people in the Australian Greens at the moment, our left-wing alternative party, is that it is oppressive that there are any safe uh, roadblocks to care or any safeguards. And I've had people, you know, uh, when I question that, say I'm providing cover for turfs or bigots or what have you. And, And so I started to see this incongruence between, I'm like, hang on a second, Everyone knows that I'm a detransitioner. Everyone that we're close to has heard us t- talk about the fact that we're going to have to do IVF and that it's really hard. I know people don't know the full story, but do you, are you really so sure that you want to be sharing all this stuff as, as someone who's in my life that's saying, like, you know, you must affirm trans stuff. You must affirm someone's trans identity or... Maybe we're all trans and we should all try it, you know, or like people saying it's transphobic to point to the risks involved in HRT. And and I just, I was hearing this stuff all the time, all around me. And so it just became so frustrating. I saw what happened to Kathleen Stock, the academic from the UK who is gender critical. And I had read her book, Material Girls. And I don't, I'm not actually necessarily fully aligned with her on all the issues, But I thought it was an amazing analytical breakdown just from an objective point of view where it explained the different ideological understandings of sex and gender that exist, including within the so-called queer movement or the whatever you want to call it, the woke area. Even within that, there's actually considerable differences in how they analyse it. And she actually lays all that out and then some alternatives and then sort of says which one she's inclined to and so I found it to be an amazing book and then probably one week after I'd read it she gets uh, abused and harassed in her workplace in a vicious and violent way essentially oh not violent but (laughs) and resigns is forced out and uh, an old friend maybe not quite a friend but someone who'd stayed at my home who'd been in the same socialist organization as me who is a lecturer in what is it, culture and gender studies or whatever you would call it at the University of Melbourne, which is a sandstone sandstone institution, like a top global university, celebrating the fact that stock has been harassed out. And I couldn't believe it. I was the first, this person doing that, I was the first trans person they met. And they knew that I had detransitioned. And so I messaged her, questioning it, 
got nothing, said, I'm not going to apologize for criticizing transphobes. And then a lot long after that, politician named Rohan Leppert from the Australian Greens spoke out on Twitter. I can't remember exactly what he said, but I think he broadly acknowledged the existence of detransitioners and that as something that perhaps means there's an issue in how we do gender affirmative for trans care. And he just got absolutely dogpiled by it. And he's, he's been on the Melbourne City Council for 10 years. He was, he's the campaign manager for the first Australian Greens politician to win a seat in our parliament, lower house. Um, people who hate him now will often comment on his tweets being like, dude, you could have been the leader of the Australian Greens one day if you didn't throw your career away on this issue. Um, he, he, made, he made a statement and he knew what he was doing. And his reputation has been severely harmed by it and his career irrevocably changed. And I saw that. And, and before that, I had just known him as this guy from the council who tweets about bike lanes and I saw that everyone I knew online hated him. And I thought, enough is enough. I'm speaking out. And ever since then, I have been. So, it was, yeah, it was just seeing that outright harassment of very reasonable, respectable public figures who clearly have the right intentions for reflecting the concerns of people that have come to them. That, that drove me over the edge. I have a couple of questions for you from Twitter, and, and one I think we've already answered. Mm. So um, when I posted on Twitter that I'd be interviewing you, Joseph Miller asked what constellation of factors led you to detransitioning, and I think we talked about that. Um, but Michelle Oliva uh, from The Long Way Home mm. episode, uh, she asked mm. me to ask you about your experiences with Australian LGBT plus organizations and their denial of the existence <laughs> of detransitioners. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I've been having some fun lately. I've been calling up more or less every organization in New South Wales or Victoria, which claims to be there to support our community. Just with like, you know, pretty simple, pretty simple question like, do you have any resources for detransitioners? And my partner's done the same. Like, we message, you know, these Facebook networks that market themselves as an open peer support network or as Transgender Victoria, who I believe are actually a, a registered, uh, you know, entity. Uh, they have simply repeatedly ignored our, all of our messages and emails, even though their Facebook message, their Facebook thing says typically responds within one hour. Uh, I've called up the Pride Centre in St Kilda, which is a, a, something that the state government created. This is a, basically a building project boondoggle uh, with a lot of office space and a bar on the roof that they called the Pride Centre for some reason. But I've called them up and they've just said, sorry, we can't help you and hung up multiple times. I've called up, I'm not going to name names about what happened where, but I've called up organisations called stuff like Rainbow Door, Switchboard, like all these things that are for queer youth, crisis lines, and I've had people just like fail to understand what I'm telling them about me. And and so I'm like, I, I don't know where to go for support. And they're like, well, I'm trying to understand what's not worked for you so far. Why can't you just go? And I'm like, everything. It's all not worked for me. And they're like, I'm, I'm sure. I'm, I'm just not sure what you're asking me to do. What can I do? What, what do you want from us? And they're the, like a crisis hotline, not crisis, but, the, you know, their job is to do referrals, give advice, give counselling, and they don't even affirm what I'm going through most of the time when I call them up. And these are like marketed toward, you know, 
young adults who are queer and I don't even get an acknowledgement of it. And then occasionally I get some outright hostility, like people will just say I'm trolling and, and like that I'm just a fake personality. I've tried calling up the gender centres. They mostly just don't return my messages. Got through to one caseworker at one gender centre, but he was a caseworker who mostly does, just works with people in homeless, you know, a homelessness crisis. So, and he, I got to talk to him and he understood. There's a few other people I've managed to get in contact with, the community health organisations working in this space on the inside who see the problem. But for the most part, the public face of every organisation in Australia that receives any kind of funding to support our community or as a self-appointed appointed spokesperson for the community, point blank refuses to acknowledge my experience and will not offer me anything. The only organisation that's offered me any support is uh, an organisation called Beyond Blue, who are a mainstream mental health charity, which I always thought was evil because everyone on the left hates them because, A, they're associated with a right-wing, retired right-wing politician. B, they make the supposedly reactionary assumption that you can try to help people and treat their problems without, you know, overthrowing capitalism or whatever. <laughs> so I finally called them up. They understood. They understood why the conversion therapy laws in Victoria were making it difficult for me to access therapy and helped script me for how to make a therapist confident that they won't be accused of doing conversion therapy by seeing me and then yeah, I, I don't even know if it's okay that I mention that because of how severe these laws are and if I could get, be getting beyond blue in trouble there um, no, I, is how serious this is. You, you're I mean, bringing I, up a really just, important... Just, that's just to make a point, you know? No, you're bringing up a really yeah. important question. I actually wanted to talk about this. There was a detransitioner on Twitter who posted mm. something like, I really want help, how do I find a therapist when there are these anti-conversion therapy laws? And I I don't even remember what part of the world this person was in. (laughs) There's so many places where these laws Mm. are passed, but I, I, I chimed in and I explained like, you getting the help that you need is not against the law, but I think, you know, for your own sake, you're going to have to make it super clear to this therapist that you've already made the choice to detransition. You're not planning to report them to their licensing board for affirming (laughs) your choice to detransition. And you need Mm. trauma therapy for what you've been through. And, you know, here are some keywords for the types of therapy that might be helpful to you. But it's, it's just so insane that with this misunderstanding of the idea of conversion therapy, there are even detransitioners who are at the point where you're at, you know, at the point where... They've thoroughly decided that trans was the wrong choice for them, and and they're still afraid. Be- well, and I think partly it's because for people who haven't studied this issue intensely, you know, like I think she actually thought that for a detransitioner to get supportive therapy was called conversion therapy, <laughs> which like no, it's mm-hmm. not called conversion therapy when a detransitioner gets therapy. But I think, you know, we have Mm. therapists in our audience who are interested in helping detransitioners. And, you know, this Mm. is just one of the many things that you need to understand you're navigating here. Yeah. And and I don't know how a therapist is supposed to navigate it now. Like if if someone with your level of understanding were in Melbourne, 
and 2016 me comes to you. I have no consciousness of my traumas. You would hopefully be competent enough to know there's something wrong. It seems like you would. But I was convinced that this was the right thing to do. There was that part of me that was open to the need to have a professional confirm that. But, and, and I can think of a number of things that you could have said, but I can think of few that wouldn't, by my reading of the legislation, that wouldn't fall afoul of how conversion therapy has been defined in Victoria. And because you would, you, you need, it says you have to affirm the identity and you would have to be at least implying that that identity is essentially a delusion. And there's a high (laughs) comorbidity rate between gender dysphoria and personality disorders. I saw a recent study on that. I think the rate was about 81% um, where the the most common personality disorder was narcissistic, but, you know, also borderline and histrionic are up there. And Wow, I've never read that. So, I mean, as therapists, we almost all live with some degree of fear that at some point someone will make a complaint about us. And we know that those complaints are most likely to come from people who have personality disorders, right? You know, people who externalize. Basic causality. Yeah. Yeah. People who externalize their distress and blame the world, people who make things dramatic or black and white. Another thing with borderline personality disorder is that there's an inability to hold normal adult levels of ambivalence about the mixture of positive and negative in any given situation or person. And so a borderline person can flip from one extreme to the other because they can't hold the complexity all at once. So a lot of people coming to a therapist with gender-related distress are quite likely to have borderline personality disorder, whether that's diagnosed or Mm. not. And that means that they're Mm. also quite likely to show up being extremely intense about their identity at the moment because one of the features of borderline is an unstable sense of identity and Mm. and impulsivity, right? So when someone who's borderline finds this trans identity, they can cling to it very intensely, they can be very convincing, and they can project onto the therapist because projection is common with borderline and Mm. uh, boundary Mm. issues in therapy are common, right? They can project onto therapist Mm -hmm. their ambivalence. Now, if you take gender out of the equation, think about any other issue that we treat, we know that someone with borderline is likely to idealize and devalue us in therapy. Within the second session, they're going to be saying, I love you so much. You're the best therapist ever. And by the sixth session, it could easily be, I hate you just because of, you know, one wrong word. Um, And we know that they're likely to play out their ambivalence by projecting it onto us with many things. And it doesn't just take borderline. Like, for example, uh, somebody who's struggling with thinking about quitting drinking. You're thinking about quitting drinking, and this has happened with many patients of mine. It's very easy to get wrapped up in projecting onto me as the authority figure and the mental health professional that I have the agenda for them of quitting drinking, even though they're the one who came to me of their own free will saying, I want help quitting drinking, right? But then the part of them that's coming to me saying, I want help quitting drinking, that part is 
what in internal family systems therapy would be called like the manager part or in psychodynamic therapy would be called the superego. You know, it's just one part of you. And there are still other parts of you that don't want to quit drinking. If it were really that simple that all of you were on board, then you would have quit without professional help. So the job of a therapist is to help the person work through their ambivalence, get in touch with those many parts, and help those parts dialogue with each other. But it's really easy to project that Mm. on the therapist. And then, you know, the first session, it's I want to quit drinking. The next session, it's you want me to quit drinking. I'm going to stay right here. Stop judging me. I'm fine the way I am, <laughs> right? So it's it's important as a therapist to have skills for not getting caught up in that, but for seeing the whole process. So take this and now apply it to gender. It's very easy for people who are struggling with their identity, whether they have borderline personality disorder or just traits, or they're just immature because a lot of these people coming to therapy with these issues are like 15 years old. So every 15-year-old is you know, basically borderline in their Mm. (laughs) behavior because they're not psychologically Mm. mature. (laughs) You know, it's Mm. just Mm. so understandable that many people with gender-related distress cannot tolerate and cannot consciously be aware of their own natural ambivalence and that part of that's going to be projected. And then the therapist is going to be viewed as an authority figure who has an agenda for them, right? And then even the process of a person grappling with their own identity, you know, even a therapist who's just trying in as neutral a way as possible to hold space for the parts of the person that do and don't want to pursue transition, it's very easy to get wrapped up in an interpersonal dynamic where now you're fearing that your client thinks you have an agenda for them, that you're trying to convert them, and this is somebody who could go and make a board report. So this is It's just clinically, it's such a mess to even come anywhere near it. And that's why I still can't, you know, people think I'm free now. (laughs) Like I I got a message uh, from another professional in the field who who has similar concerns saying, you know, I heard that you don't work with adolescents, but also you resolved your board complaint. Why is that? Aren't you free now? And it's like, well, I... I would love to help adolescents work through their ambivalence and and learn, you know, to process what's actually at the root and see the complexity of the situation. And, you know, I'm sure that many of these adolescents, if you could, if you could get in there with them, you'd you'd be able to access that natural, healthy ambivalence because to to feel gung-ho at a young age about doing something that'll have permanent consequences, that's that's not healthy. But hmm. it, my, I still feel like my hands are tied. I still feel like I can't risk working with adolescents or working with families. And so parents are coming to me, will you please hmm. see my child? And I'm like, I can see you. I can hold space for what hmm. you're going through as a parent. And we can talk about your understanding of your child's psychology and how you want to approach parenting. Hmm. But yeah, this is, a, this is a real issue. And I appreciate yeah. you sharing your story in a way that helps people understand even more of the complexity of why this model is so inappropriate, but also Mm. how it's hard when the laws are as they are, it's so hard for people to get the type of care that they need. And for you, you did need someone to question, like you needed that psychiatrist to question Mm. and push back on Mm. the narrative that you had arrived at because you didn't come to therapy having Mm. it all figured out. Nobody does. No. And I think that something that's key there is for the the clinician to be aware of how the patient is feeling about 
that therapeutic relationship. Yeah. Like I, the kind of person I was at the time, the way I felt at the time, he was a man that I think was in his 50s who I thought was very, you know, a million degrees, all this stuff, and I felt I'd always had a interesting relationship with my father, not a negative one, but it, it, remind, it reminded me a bit of him, and I, I was intimidated by him. I didn't, want to, I didn't want him to think I was stupid. I didn't want him to think I was waste, that I was wasting his time or that I was crazy. And so I, that was, and I've noticed this feeling with a lot of my therapists that I've seen, I really want to please them and to, to, to convince them that I'm not a bad person. And that's what's actually running through my head a lot of the time when I'm supposed to be doing talk therapy with them. And now that I know that, I, I think I can actually do make therapy work probably if I find a good therapist. But it, it's staggering to me that a therapist wouldn't be aware at least of want, wanting to, 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 to lay, establish how I'm feeling about that and about what I'm saying to him and whether I'm feeling any nervousness or tentativeness or whether I'm feeling fully, fully comfortable. I think that personal level, on that personal level, that's non-negotiable. This is exactly why it's so important for therapists to understand transference and countertransference and have a relational psychodynamic foundation as as part of their understanding, right? You can't miss out on what's actually happening in the room, in the here and now. And, you know, just because you as a therapist think of yourself or see yourself a certain way or have certain intentions toward your clients doesn't mean that your client is having the same experience of you. And it's important to be aware of those issues. You know, I was just talking about the transference in a borderline patient or transference in someone who has ambivalence about quitting drinking. And, you know, I recently had a conversation like this with one of my patients where, because I I really try to encourage people gently by making it okay to have insights about how they're feeling toward me or therapy and to, to voice those. And, you know, patient of mine expressed something about thinking that I was having a particular type of judgment about her uh, or that I had a particular desire for her. And, and you know, you have to be able as a mm. therapist to react to that non-defensively, mm. but also not agreeing to it, right? So I said, you know, in, included in my response was something along the lines of, you know, given the way that, the, that authority and judgment were handled in your family, it really makes sense that you would see me this way, right? And then it becomes an, yeah. a healing opportunity, right? Now, if if I were to dismiss that out of hand, I'd be missing an opportunity. Or if I were to take it on and agree with her perception, I'd be missing an opportunity, right? But it's it's to be able to kind of treat it neutrally where is there authority in my position? Sure. Is, is she entitled to her own perception of that? Yes. And... She's here to heal something that's connected to the way that she views authority. And right now that's coming out in the way that she's viewing me, right? So it seems like, you know, that was one of many lapses in your care. Is this a psychiatrist wasn't thinking about 
all the things that could have been bringing you into that room, claiming you had gender dysphoria and all the reasons that you could have been behaving so quote unquote convincingly, right? It seems like one of one of the reasons that you were so convincing is because you felt like you had something to prove to this authority figure. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. This has been such a beautiful conversation in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah, I feel uh, I feel I feel like this has been really productive. Yeah, for me. Mm. Thank you. Mm. My motivations are just for everyone to get the care that's best for them, you know? I'm open to being proven wrong about the scale of the problem that I perceive, for example, you know? But I know that there is a problem because my existence proves it. And I don't care if I'm the only one. I, I still expect some accountability for it, some acknowledgement of it. Yeah. And turns out I'm far from the only one. Definitely. And that's um, it's been really courageous of you to reach out to all those organizations and confront your old psychiatrist and ask for help. Mm. Well, I like to think that people show they show you who they are and you want to know. So, yeah, it's it's been very challenging and very confronting. But I, I think we have to face the truth. So besides Jen, or maybe within <laughs> within having Jen in your life, what hmm. what are some of the things that have Helped you feel whole? Well, Jen has a very close relationship with her family. Certainly not an easy one. There's a lot of history in that family. But a lot of love and a lot of affection. And and, and they welcomed me with incredibly warm arms. I mean, I've always been treated well by my partner's family, but this was different. Like I was brought into a family. I now have a nephew and a niece that we help to care for occasionally, which has been incredible. I've never been around infants before in my entire life, and I love it. <laughs> I love my work. I get to work with some of the most talented and incredible people. I have complete autonomy. We have so many goals for our life uh, together. I know that Jen is going to be have some kind of amazing impact on the world. I, I think I... Uh, I'm torn, you know, I, 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 on the one hand, I have this so much in front of me that I can do in so many ways. On the other, I feel like I need to have an impact on, on this issue because it affected me and I think it's important. And so, but I feel like it's a good problem to have. I, I, I we're planning a family. We have two dogs. We're, we're, I'm, I'm healing the relationship with my family surprisingly quickly. I'm a big gamer, love I have been all my life. A lot of my closest friends are people that I met on a PC gaming farm in 2001, and the community stayed together ever since then, shifted between farm to farm to farm. Now now we live all over the place. I love to cook. I'm a great cook. There's a lot to live for. Thank you. That's a perfect place to wrap up. So where can people find you? So I am Ollie Bun on Twitter, Ollie underscore Bun also happy to put my email address in the show notes um, if anyone wants to contact me sounds good all right thank you it's been a pleasure and an honor thank you so much stephanie 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.